This is The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery, hoof care and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Our episode today is sponsored by the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partners, Magnus Magnetica. I'm in Suffolk today, not very far from where I live and work. Uh, So it's a very local um, conversation, this one. But it's with somebody who comes from a very long way off and has travelled the world and lived on three different continents. I'm going to be speaking to uh, Sergio Mueya, and he has had a long life as a farrier, but he's retired now, and we're going to explore what he's done and what he's doing at present. Uh, Good morning, Sergio. Morning, Simon. So, uh, the first thing I ought to ask you about, Sergio, is your family history, because I know you were born in Peru. Yes, yeah, yeah, born in Peru, and and yeah, both parents are Peruvian. I had an Austrian grandfather on my mother's side, but um, but no, I am am Peruvian, mainly Spanish origin. And, uh, but no, even my great-grandfather, he was a composer of the Peruvian National Anthem. The lyrics, I should say, not the music, but um, yeah, so, so I am Peruvian. And you, I think you moved to America when you were quite young, didn't you? Yeah, I was three. I was three when we went to, to the States and settled in, in Massachusetts for about um, just under six years I was there, yeah. Which, at that age, was a whole lifetime. That was an eternity, you know. Nowadays, six years is nothing, but... So by the time you were ten, you were an all-American boy. Yeah, well, not not truly all-American boy, but yes, yes, I could. I, I had the more of the local accent, I suppose. Um, yeah. So where did you then go? Then we went back to Peru just for a couple of years, and then to Spain. Um, and um, yeah, we settled in Spain for again a few more years. And then eventually my dad had an offer in Portugal, so we moved to, to Portugal for his work and ended up living in Portugal for another six years. Um, but it was in Spain that I first met you, wasn't it, when you were in Toledo? Or yes. in a village very close to Toledo? Yes, yes, I was on the outskirts of Toledo in the village of Nambroca. <laughs> How could you not remember that? No, and, but I, <laughs> I, I remember the wonderful uh, city of Toledo. Yes, yes, Toledo. Um, and we'll return to Toledo yeah. and, it, and it's uh, famous uh, for making swords. Um, so you then eventually came here to the UK and you used to come over regularly to study for your diploma. Yes, yes, I, 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 um, I came here, um, bumped into you, as you might recall, in the pub. <laughs> Well, in, in, in the horseshoes. What an odd place to find me. <laughs> and um, and it all uh, began then. I, 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 you, you suggested about the diploma, and um, I was quite, quite keen on the idea. So, yeah, I did a, um, what was it, a, a little trial with a, the Stearns down in Kent. And uh, then I was told to do nine weeks in the college. So I spread those nine weeks out through a, a year. And then I sat the diploma, and yeah. So what, lots of toing and froing. Yeah, and that was before the economy flights. That was proper, proper flight prices I had to pay back then. It was an expensive year, but well worth it. Um, to walk away with a diploma and the experience I gained, that was just an, an incredible experience. So, and it has served me well. And then you 
came over to work for me for just a year, I think was the plan. It wasn't was it? going to be one or two years. To, then I, I would sit my associate because you, you, you said you're very academic, so you should, you're probably going to go on beyond the diploma. And I said, well, I'd love to, but there's no way I could do that coming and going from Spain like I did the diploma. So uh, that would require a different type of experience. And that's when you offered me to work with you. So I jumped on that opportunity and that was great. Yeah, it was going to be one, two years and yeah. <laughs> I, I can't remember how long it lasted, but it was, it wasn't as many as 10, was it? But It, it was just <laughs> nine years, yeah. just under 10. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, nine and a half. No, I never so, got to 10, no. Yeah. So we, so although, um, I mean, it'd be true to say that you never were, were shoeing exclusively racehorses. Of course, my practice was mainly racehorses. Yeah. So you did a lot of uh, racing work and also stud farm work. Yes, 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 yeah. And a few backyard ponies as well and a few adventures. But yeah, yeah, it was a yeah, so it was a mixed, busy days. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, busy days. Now, when, when you were working for me, you were travelling back to Spain to do clinics, weren't you? I, I can was, remember that. Yeah. I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. For the, for, they, they really took off as, uh, from 2005, 2006, all the way up until, well, the crisis in 2008, really. I was very busy with, uh, with it, actually, before 2005. So, yeah, and I would also fly for, for work. I would fly every six, seven weeks to do a few days' work in Spain still. Yeah, yeah. my little foot in the doorstep still. Yeah. yeah, and that that went on for quite a long time. Mm. Okay, well, tell tell us something about shoeing horses in Spain. The difference of, of, of working there. Well, there's a, a no end of differences, and uh, and of course, people must understand. I'm talking about Spain a few years back, um, um, a good ten years ago, when I was still shoeing there, because it is my hope and my slight perception that things have changed a little bit for the better right now. But it was hard work because. Um, the handling of the horses was very, very different. Not always very sympathetic to the horse. Oh, never cruel, I wouldn't say cruel, but just not, not as engaging as it might be um, in this country. Um, so I was wanting to fight against the behavior of the horse. And the other thing was the, the feet condition, which is what really concerned us as farriers. It's, um, but the feet were a direct uh, result of the, the weather and the, the, the climate in, in Spain. I was in La Mancha and I would fly Predominantly to we, La Mancha. We have to tell people is, La Mancha is the yeah, area say, around Madrid. It, it, it's central Spain. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's around Madrid. It's technically just south of Madrid, the provinces of Toledo, then Ciudad Real, Albacete, and Guadalajara, four provinces. And they surround Madrid. And, it's a, and people must also remember that central Spain is a high plateau. It's about 640, 650 meters above sea level. It's very flat, but it's very high up. And that's what is a bit um, difficult to perceive when you, when you don't know that. You think, why is it so cold? Why is it so dry? Why is it? It's because you are quite high up. But yeah, so, so the feet conditions were very, very difficult to what I, I would find in Newmarket. It was, they were always the opposite poles. Um, the feet would be very dried, sometimes shriveled, very hard, limited expansion. So shoeing had to be uh, adapted to those conditions. And that's why shoeing is quite different. Well, we, we, when we travelled out recently to Andalusia, not mm. to La Mancha, but, um, and had a look at some Andalusian horses, of course, you know, for my eyes, they all had oval, yeah. steep hooves, um, yeah. little frogs in the middle, and I, I guess that's more yeah. typical of what you that were seeing. That is indeed, indeed. Uh, the, the little upright feet uh, are very, very constant. Good heels, yeah. We hardly ever see the collapsed heels. 
yeah, very, very strong heels, too strong. Um, they lose elasticity. Um, and that, I think, is part of the gait that they have sometimes on, on hard, hard ground. Uh, so you're, you're in a very hot, dry climate with these hooves. Uh, did that cause you any problems uh, trimming them, and how did you overcome that? Well, um, although traditional shoeing in Spain is, is quite different, is what you see on mainland Europe, it's a two-man job, um, and therefore some tools are used in a two-man job that you wouldn't use shoeing on your own, but I did use the towing knife um, always on the, on the hard soles, because there's no way you could get your little, our, our normal various knives that we'd, we'd use in this country. And is that a straight towing knife, or is that one of these with a slight curve to it? Mine was always straight. Later on, I thought I was being very ingenious, and I, I forged one slightly curved, which was would work a treat, and now I see that they're all made curved, so that, that was just a, a happy coincidence. But yeah, they, the, the curved ones actually work a little bit better than the, the absolute yeah. straight ones. But, um, but even in winter, you'd have very hard feet because although in La Mancha in winter you can have days of minus 10, or, well, minus 17 one winter, um, it doesn't really rain that much either in, in winter. So it's a very dry winter and very, very cold. So the feet are still quite, quite hard. Okay, so that's shoeing. And so you shod for 30 years of your life or 25 years? Uh, 26, 27 years, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. not a bad guess. And then, of course, um, uh, no different to many farriers, wear and tear um, uh, took its toll on you. Yeah, yeah. Back, knees, anything else? Uh, I, I always thought, yeah, those, you know, for 20 years you live with a bad back and thinking, oh, that this is going to put me out of work. But it wasn't the back in the end, it was the knees. Yeah. The knees began to crumble until it got to a point where it just was, just, I could not go forward. And I know up until a couple of years ago you were trimming a few, weren't you? Mm. You'd sort of given up chewing by then, but you were trimming a few. But you've found a new career, haven't you? And um, I think it's a, a good example to all of us. I'd have to say, Sergio, that all the time you worked for me, that you were never one that got in the forge at every opportunity and, uh, you know, did some blacksmithing. But now you've found yourself as a specialist blacksmith. Yeah, I know, I know, one of those ironies that, uh, yeah, yeah, it, and it, 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 but I get to the, in, in about, a roundabout way, I go back to blacksmithing through food, you see, because um, when, I, when I retired from, from, well, I wasn't retired fully, I was just coping and struggling with the idea of having to retire from shoeing horses, but I had more time on my hands, so I was doing more of my butchery, my little hobby of, uh, we had pigs on the farm and my lambs, and I would do the, the butchery, I would make all the, um, hams and uh, bacons and, and, and gammons, a whole lot, sausages. And I was fed up with the knives I had. So because I had more time on my hands, I could spend some time in the forge to make myself a pair of, a set of nice knives. And, uh, and that's how it happened. So it was food that brought me back to the forge in that way. And the food's gone by the wayside now because I, I remember you mm. used to specialize in, uh, in Spanish style hams and Spanish style. Mm. Sausages, chorizo. Yeah, uh, I started a, a little um, company with a friend of mine from Spain. He has a, a very artisan um, small firm that they make um, the paprika, pimenton, as we call it in Spain, from La Vera. And it, so he had all the contacts and we started importing nice artisan um, Spanish food. But um, the idea was to supply nice shops in this country, but that's... Um, that's a lot of work. It's, it's a lot more than I expected. And I discovered that for that kind of business, it's not just about having nice food. It's about being a proper salesman, which is, I must admit, I lack. Not, <laughs> not, your... <laughs> not my forte at all. So, no, you know. well, I think that, that would be true of the, uh, most farriers. Uh, 
are down to earth. They they say this is how I do it and take it or leave it, and yeah. that's not the way salesmen work. No, that's very very negative in sales. <laughs> so you got into the knife making, and we're in this lovely old two hundred year old barn on your family farm now here in Suffolk, and you have your forge at mm. one end of it. And uh, I've been watching you knife make all morning. Um, so so tell us about some your business because I know it has two prongs to it if mm. we can say that about knife yeah. making <laughs> yeah I, I, again I, I just let the whole thing develop organically uh, whereas with the, the Spanish food import I was trying to create a business a proper business head on in that and and uh, and you know that it never really lost money but it just didn't make money so uh, it wasn't going anywhere without a big investment so I left that when I started with the knives it started a bit more on the side I made the knives for myself put them on Facebook then a friend asked me for some knives and before I knew it, I was making more and more knives. So I let it just develop, as I say, organically. And I also decided not to invest in tools and machines to do the proper workshop. I just used what I had. So as all farriers um, doing anything, we always use our farrier tools. So I had the forge from the van, I had my anvils, and, and um, fortunately I had a big anvil as well, not just a little one. Um, and yeah, and I had my, my uh, belt grinder that I always used. Um, but there's something I've got to mention because you're a very inventive guy and you said, I remember you telling me years ago that economically you couldn't invest in a power hammer. Hmm. So you built your own, didn't you? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. I, I, the, the thing oh. is, uh, the other wears and tears I have involve my, my shoulder and that's of course on my hammer um, arm, shoulder and elbow and wrist. So three kind of crucial joints in a, in a, in a blacksmith's arm. Um, so for forging, heavy forging and forging out Damascus blades and that, I couldn't do it by hammer. So I needed a power hammer. I could not visualize spending five, six grand on a power hammer. So I, I made one, yeah. The good thing, this is, as you said, is a family farm, my wife's family farm, and they've been here for a hundred years. So there's a ton of scrap on the farm, which um, is now being put to good use. Because it's a couple of years since I visited you here, but I came and I saw uh, the Mark II or the improved <laughs> power hammer. Yeah. And it has a better leaf spring, doesn't it? That's, yes, that's, yes. <laughs> yeah, a better motor and a better leaf spring. That's a, the big improvement. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the original leaf spring that you saw came off a, a, a little cart that somebody lashed up here on the farm years ago in the 60s. But they used a leaf spring from a car from the 30s. I don't even know what car it was. So it was a bit too old and it just cracked and fell to pieces. Uh, but now I've got a leaf spring from a, a, a Mercedes a Sprinter. It's a beautiful leaf spring. Yes. So yeah, there's good advice. And anybody yep. who wants to make their own power hammer, <laughs> yep. use a Mercedes leaf spring. Yes, okay. yes, yes, well, yes. I'm sure that will be people... <laughs> Very know, useful information. Yeah, people will be <laughs> noting that down right away. And the other, the other improvement that I've seen here, uh, you have a hydraulic tool that produces 30 tonnes of yeah. press. And when you do Damascus steel you initially press it, don't you? Yes, 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 because anybody that's forged um, or, or welded, forged welded, will know that if you hammer it too hard, you spit out all the, the molten metal, which is not much that you'll have there, and you, you, you weaken your, your weld. The, uh, the, the advantage with the press is that you just squeeze just enough, so it all sticks together very nicely. So I got uh, a lot less flaws coming out in the blades with, since I've been using the, the press. Yeah, and for you might have seen this as you noticed this morning as well. Just forging in general, I use it forging out and stretching yeah. and everything. So. Yeah, I've, I've not seen a press used like yeah. that with hot metal in it. 
Yeah. It, it works great. It quickens things. But I, I did ask you about the two sides of your business, and uh, mm. we sort of went off at a tangent yeah. there. Yes. There's the, the knife making that you often make to order, custom-made yeah. knives, yeah. but you also now run courses. Yes, yes. I, I, again, the courses um, just sprung up on me. It, it all happened um, a couple of years ago. A, a lady on a, one of the little markets, a beautiful Pickenham Mill um, craft fair, um, she came up to me and said, oh, do, do you run experience days? My husband would really love an experience day in making a knife. He's always wanted to make a knife, um, and he's, he'll be 75 now, and I thought it would be a nice birthday present. So I hadn't even thought of these courses, and I thought, I said immediately, yes, of course, <laughs> uh, we can make a knife in a day. I just quickly went in through my head, is it possible? Yeah, it should be possible. So I said yes, and that's how they all started, and they've been a great, great success, I must say. And, um, I, and I should say, anybody interested in either Sergio's knives or the courses, they've just got to look up Twisted Horseshoe Knives, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. And they will find you there. Um, yeah. So you make knives to, and I know you, you, you make custom-made knives, so kitchen knives, you run these courses, but you have been doing a little bit of making farrier knives, and I know mm. I tried to encourage you the last few years, and now yeah. I can't afford one of your knives. <laughs> no, well, well, no, I, I do mm. like to make farrier knives, indeed. They are finicky things to make, um, but I do enjoy making them. But, but yeah, they, they, they take a while. Um, I, I still get... a. a a few orders for various knives, and I'm sure that if I came up and followed your advice and made a, a little batch of them, I, I, they'd find easily find an owner. But uh, but you you found a niche with that as well. It's not yeah. the middle or the bottom end of the market, is it? It's the no. top end. Yeah. And yeah. these are beautifully made knives. Yeah. Perhaps you could tell us something about uh, the handles, for example, that you you make your knives. Yeah. Your knife I, I I use um all all types of wood I can um, get my hands on. Again, fortunately, on the on the farm, we have an old orchard with uh, um, very old apple trees and plum trees, and that's the wood I started using to start with, which is, I think, fruit trees are beautiful, it's beautiful wood. Then, as things started progressing, I got orders for, oh, but could you use rosewood? So I started looking to rosewood. I started looking to more exotic woods, and now I, I do offer a whole range of woods, anything I can get my hands on, really. And I must say, I've discovered woodwork as, as I went along as well, and the, the beauty of wood. But I also make um, what is known as micarta handles. So micarta is a make, I shouldn't really use it. It's a, use a name, it's like saying Hoover instead of vacuum cleaner. Um, but um, uh, micarta handles, what they are, is just layered or laminated um, cloth with um, a resin could be oh, epoxy right. or could be um, the resin used for, for fiberglass. And you just build up the scales for the handle um, like that. Um, so it's, it's, it's basically a plastic handle, but uh, with, it has an advantage over wood in bushcraft knives that you know, the, the, the environment won't damage it. It falls in a puddle, it falls in the mud, and you can make it with very live color. So if it does fall in the mud, you can actually find it. Can you put it through your dishwasher? You could probably put the handle through the dishwasher, although, uh, yeah, the blade wouldn't be happy with it, but yeah, yeah. Okay. It, 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 um, now, I had noticed that the other end yeah. of the barn is a wood shop now, yeah. and it didn't used to be. No, 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 no. So, there was a general dump area at uh, the other end, and it still is, but um, with a little corner more for, for the woodwork, yeah. 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 But also, uh, you do a very nice thing with the, the ferrules, hmm. if I pronounce that yeah, correctly. Yeah, yeah, ferrules, oh. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I say ferals. Other people say ferules, but oh well, that's right. I, 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 I cannot bring myself to pronounce it like that. Okay, so t <laughs> so tell everybody what a feral the, is. The feral is is actually well, the word would come from ferros, which is uh, iron in in Latin. The irony with the the ferals I make and most people make now actually are non non ferric, so they they have no iron. They're they're non non ferric are metal, so it's brass, bronze, and what have you. Um, but what I do is I, I melt down my own ingots. I make these blocks of, of brass bronze. And I say brass bronze because I do mix um, bronze in it. The bronze that I mix in it is actually either Viking or Anglo-Saxon um, bronze because I have a friend who does a lot of metal detecting and he gets all these snippets. And I was shocked to learn that museums that they don't want them. Okay, that's fair enough. They're, they've got tons of it and better pieces. But um, it just goes into the general scrap and gets sold off as... Um, yeah. For, for recycling um, so so he gives me all these snippets I just love the idea of having Viking and Anglo-Saxon bronze so, in the ferrule so the ferrule is actually sorry you did ask what the ferrule was yes <laughs> that's what you want me to get back to sure okay. um, so the ferrule is the little metal part the Americans call them bolsters so uh, you have in the front between the handle and the blade you have a, a little metallic uh, a little brass or bronze um, piece which is um, the ferrule that's, that's what holds the, the, the handle. It's a hard part. It's just to stop the, 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 the wood that could be damaged if it were wooden. Um, it's a bit of a harder thing. And then you can have at the end of the handle another piece, which is called the pommel, just like on a sword. Um, again, for the Americans, they're both bolsters, and that's it. Okay. And yeah. I know you, you make your blades um, in, in various ways. You, you do make Damascus blades mm. of, of many, many layers, hundreds of layers. But you also um, make out of rasps quite a lot, which, uh, yeah. you know, again, as a farrier, you yeah. have. Uh, and I know now that you've stopped shoeing, so, uh, but you have plenty of farriers who are happy to give you their old rasps, and, and you make yeah. blades using that metal. <laughs> yes, I, I, do, I do love them. Um, I, I love also that the fact that the, the pattern of the rasp can come out and stay on the blade, and it's proud of its heritage. Um, and um, and I like my little link with a past as a as a farrier. But in in all truth, uh, the rasps make excellent blades. They're a, a medium to high carbon steel. I say medium because we don't really know the the the, the materials in the rasp because they, they, they are inconsistent. No, and they're, oh. they're inconsistent. What happens is there's a bracket <coughs> of steels that are good for rasps. So when they're gonna the manufacturer gonna make a batch, they just go to the international steel market and buy the cheapest they can find within that bracket. So that's why so we, we sometimes get a box. Farriers yeah. are quite right when they yeah. say it was a bad batch. Yeah, 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 exactly. You will notice it. Sometimes they fail in the, in, the, in the heat treatment. So the steel might be good, but the quenching, the hardening of the steel has not gone that well. So they left them a little bit soft, and that's why we find that they don't work. Yeah. Or you get other steels like Savage, if I can say brands, they, they tend to be the ones that you pull it out of the, the sleeve and you immediately cut your hands because they're, they're just so, so sharp, so pointy. Um, uh, but then it's, it's not a given that they're going to last more than others. So once you get rid of that extra sharpness, they, they just die a sudden death. So, so yeah, materials vary, very big time. But the heat treatment doesn't bother me because I'm going to anneal it anyway before making the, the knife. I'm going to get rid of their heat treatment and put my own on, on the blade so, so I can fix that. Yeah. And it's a very forgiving steel for making a knife. Okay, we've had a look at um, knife making, which is a, the big part of mm. your life now. Um, uh, the other thing I should mention is uh, you and I have known each other now, well, 
probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, whatever it is. But yeah. the one thing that's always struck me is that um, much like myself, you're a bon viveur. You, you, <laughs> and, but you're more of a gourmet than me. I, I, well, I'm always impressed that, you know, we've travelled to Spain a couple of times uh, together and I've, I've travelled out to mm. see you there. And you know where the good restaurant is and what to choose, and especially you know the wine. Yeah, well, it's just survival instincts. <laughs> <laughs> no, survival it's is a... going down the fish and chip shop. <laughs> no, and, and, and it, it's just, just, you know, life is too short to be wasted on, say, bad coffee or a bad meal. You know, you have to just maximise what you can when you can. So at, at the same time, don't go over the top. I, I do uh, like to... Um, <laughs> Um, you know, not all my wines are going to be the well. One, I cannot ex- afford all the expensive wines every day. But um, you know, you need the contrast always to remind you that um, a, a, a glass of juice might be nicer than a glass of water. So, well, one of the joys of travelling with you is was always um, Andrew's always that I never had to think about the menu. I just said, <laughs> Sergio, what should I eat? What should I drink? And 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 that, that worked really well for us. But of course, um, you or well, we travelled to Spain. Mm twice um, in the last year or yeah. 18 months to Andalusia to, to appear at the, the great horse show there, the SICAB of all the Andalusian mm. horses and Andalusian equine culture. Um, and you translated for me. So English is, I don't know, is English, is, it's probably your third language, is it? No, it's your well, second language if you grew up. I, I, don't. I, don't, I don't know what comes first or second. In theory, Spanish is my first language. But of course, from a very tender age, from three, I was thrown into an Anglo american speaking world and uh, learned english and uh, although according to my brothers i always had a weird accent when i was a kid i had a, a very slurred accent people say that about you now <laughs> yeah oh, i know i know, I know. <laughs> so um, uh, but um but yeah so but yeah I, I do think in english if i'm speaking in english if i'm speaking in spanish i'm thinking in spanish so that's that's how it works really well and portuguese is the other one yeah um so i usually have a bit of fun at this point um because i've had quite a few of my uh, victims um, uh, who, where English is not their first language. So what I would like you to say to me in Spanish is, uh, Madam, if your horse does not stand still, I cannot shoe it. <laughs> Señora, si su caballo no se está quieto, no lo puedo errar. Thank you. Well, I'm doing this because I'm hoping to build up so farriers, wherever they travel, mm. are able to tell people yeah, yeah. To, <laughs> At least that, to hold their that key phrase that will know it. <laughs> yeah. All right. The other the other thing I'd like to cover is is more the. I know you. I, I've known you've always been some something of a philosopher. So what I would like to know is, um, what is your philosophy for life? Because your life's had Oof. a lot of changes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it has. It, and and and. And all these plans I would make at strategic times in my life, and they've all panned out very, very different. I mean, who would have thought, huh, when we met, that I'd be a knife maker in yeah. Suffolk yeah. back then? I, I think that, that what I've really learned in life, if I had to summarize in just a little concept, would be um, patience and perseverance. And I don't think you can have one without the other, and they have no merit without the other. Well, that's good advice, whatever craft or whatever line that you take. Sergio, as always, it's been great speaking to you and uh, thank you for telling us all about your life, um, both as a farrier 
and then your retired life. I, I shouldn't say your retired life. Your life <laughs> after farrier. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm 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 very fortunate now. I don't actually work for a living. I just carry on in my my hobby, right? Well, you are lucky yeah. because some of us still have a mortgage to pay. But anyway, uh, yes. <laughs> I'll congratulate you on getting there. But but yeah. thank you for speaking to it. It's been. Uh, great fun and lots of good information. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for coming. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.